Miss McIntosh, my darling, chapter 47.4, last part. Certainty that there was unity as between life and death had never been, Mr. Spitzer believed, his brother's thought. His brother, having been the master of illusion, sleight of hand, and sounds coming from no source and colors, immaterial and essences not of this earth, and substances not of this body, and having seemed to be, even when he lived, many beings besides himself, beings existing simultaneously and not this long-drawn sequence which Mr. Spitzer knew, so that now the far whirrings of a windmill, of which the arms were seagulls, splashings of a rainbow-colored water bird in a rain cloud, creakings of some old rusted ferris wheel turning in the wind, or music of some old creaking carousel, could make Mr. Spitzer nervous, as if all the horses were suddenly running loose, increasing his agitation almost to a breaking point, especially as the rain dropped on him, and he was agonized by attributing consciousness to everything, things inanimate or to sudden sunsets dripping through a funnel on a dark cloud, and splashing the sea with drops of fading gold, to sudden water spouts upon a far horizon, or rainbows like crumpled silks lying along the fog-bound ground under the ashen-colored sky, burning but with few beacon lights like the eyes of the dead, to old palings with rusted nail heads slapped by the encroaching waves, the waves billowing over old fences, zigzaggedly crawling up the snow-white hills starred by starfish, the hill arising to the mountain, the mountain arising to the star, luminous pebbles rolling at the edge of the dark flood, Creakings of old windlasses and weather vanes and cable chains. Creakings of old tree boughs breaking into flower-like phantom foam. The rainbow-colored raindrops dripping from the shrouds of the old boats beached like conveys of ghosts upon the bone-white sand or balls of glittering light leaping across, leaping from crossbeam to crossbeam. Like the lights of Corpo Santo seen in flooded marsh lands or graveyards as he passed, with the dark cloak softening in the wind. Sudden lights of planets burning in his enormous shadow as lights burn low upon the shore of consciousness, seeming like inaccurate constellations to light his way. Perhaps there was no fisherman, but memory which faded, and not even Mr. Spitzer could remember all. Perhaps the meshes of reality were woven wide so that many escaped definition in life or death, wide as the places between the stars. And there were cities where there were no stars, so that not even the most solitary heart could contain or comprehend all that was possible, even like all that was impossible. For one was like that journeyer, went from star to star, one which was fading and one which might never be, and the only star was the journeyer. It was the journeyer between two worlds, both of which were non-existent. Surely the gates were wide enough to admit the passage of a moth with the moon spots upon its glimmering wings, or sleeping dragonfly upon a silken thread drifting in starlight or tented butterfly, or eye-boat or spirit or something almost not material, almost not conscious. A snowflake falling not upon any land or water or any other star or cloud, a snowflake forever falling. A white moon sank into a white wave, and yet the wave reached not the moon. Perhaps those who had not been married before their death would not be married after death. Even like that impoverished suffrage captain who rode upon a distant mountain peak, moving like a wave and came not to any rest, being forever this rider through the storm. She might search only for herself and not her opposite, for all that she had lost in life, for stars never uttered, for visions never seen, for whispers never heard, confessions never told. <clears throat> And had she found the body of her love, Mr. Spitzer sometimes wondered? Had she found all that was feminine in life and death? 
The clouds upon the clouds, the waters and the rose, the moon like a white bird, the lace mantilla like the snow upon the rock, the blood upon the snow. Had she found, like the poor mollusk, its ivory shell, its helmet, its sword? Who was indeed her love now when she was no more? What image hidden by the snow of the cloud? It always would mystify Mr. Spitzer that there was this ambivalence when she died, as if, after all, he might never know her, especially as he suffered from his own divided opinions and diffused sensibilities. There were so many facets to consider. Certainly she contributed even now to, this, to his increasing uncertainty, though he was of a mind to forgive her and to extend his compassion for this act of her oblivion to him even as, in these later years, perhaps more years than he remembered, for perhaps there was no time, he had come to be grateful, in an odd manner, to his foolish brother for the fortunate error of his suicide which had aroused, in many ways, Mr. Spitzer's consciousness, and at the same time had plunged him into deeper depths than most living men have known, and which had not been the end of wisdom, but the beginning of wisdom. For if his brother had not been superficial, Mr. Spitzer would not have been profound, or so he thought, though recognizing that he himself was increasingly capable of folly. Surely every lady must be shrouded, veiled, even as by the clouds of the waters. Surely none should go in nakedness, clothed not with the body and with the soul. The great courtier who clothed the world with the clouds and the sea with its waters and the night with its darkness must clothe, clothe this lady, this belladonna. Upon her mantle he must stitch the stars and the suns and the moons upon the rippling hem, Mr. Spitzer thought. Forgetting that the great courtier was dead, and that he was no more who clothed the mountains with the snow, and the storm with its pinnacles, and the valleys with the shadows, and the clouds with their diadems, and the clouds with the clouds, and the night with its stars. The lapidarian was become the jewel he had cut and polished, and the mosaicist was the dim pattern outlined in mosaic flagstones washed with the moon's spiraling gold where Mr. Spitzer walked. Fearful lest he should step upon a flagstone of suddenly awakening consciousness or sudden fountains, for there were eyes gleaming in the fog, and the enamelist was enameled by powdery dust blowing in cold starlight, and the glazier had fallen to the great crucible, and his nose was glass casting this shadow upon the wind, and illusion was the world, each man being clothed but by a dream, even as Mr. Spitzer wore not his body in his cloak, it seemed to him, for his was the body of the dead. He was transparent. Sometimes it seemed to him, viewing great paradox, that this great captain's skirt itself might have been her love. Perhaps her love was her skirt, hiding her great wound, her disappointment, her bleeding heart. Perhaps after all she had loved nothing but that skirt for which her love had died, as he remembered long ago, chasing her skirt as if it were a holy grail, gleaming through a cloud, or the ghostly sword Excalibur of the golden fleece. The web upon the island orchard bough, toward which Jason's Argosy sailed from the rippling water, streaked by the path of the Voyager moon, with bird-eyed galaxies in its wake, streaming upon snow-white wings, fluted like great stairways. Her love had died in freezing mountains, freezing clouds forming like opalescent icebergs around her. Her love had gone down among the snow pinnacles. She was buried in the white mountains. Snow and ice were her tomb. Her love had disappeared into the great snowfall, the curtain of snow falling like ropes of pearls, or blowing like the sail of a derelict ship under the iceberg moon. The moon cast its oar upon the waters and the clouds. So when this great suffrage storm king died after long voyagings and many storms and clouds, Mr. Spitzer, scarcely daring to trust himself for his own fading perceptions in the Stygian darkness, unlighted by a star, had allowed to her 
as he was a gentleman of the old school and one who was ever deferential, ever chivalrous, one who had said, one who had ever said that ladies should go first, that ultimate mystery are all those mysteries which should be hers and every lady's right or privilege, be she even an old corsair hacked by many wounds, some old brigand of the dead heart, the dead love, and he had scarcely dared to look upon her old shriveled, claw-marked, rain-spotted face, spotted like the rain-frog as she passed into his metamorphic somnolence, his long sleep of years, for fear it should be beautiful in the remote future or in retrospect, albeit it was his dead brother who had loved the ugly and old and time-worn and shrunken, and who had seen beauty where beauty was not, where others would be repelled. Even as he had seen life after death, life where there was no life, disparaging this life for that which was unknown to him, as some other toss of the rattling dice or turning of the starry wheel through starless heavens void and without shape upon the waters of the darkness, as Mr. Spitzer must always constantly remind himself, for in his old age he was likely to forget, drifting toward the shadow, forget that it was he who had clung to life as tenaciously as an almost transparent thistle to an old coat, for a starfish bird foot to the whirling hem of his cloak, a starfish dragging like a star over the waters, and he who had loved a beautiful face, a sparkling eye, a timeless beauty, he should have wa- he who should have watched, for perhaps the ghost of beauty had appeared as she died, the years dropping away like clouds lifting. Perhaps the last vanity had been hers. Perhaps the clouds had lowered like a veil. He did not know, for more than life or death he feared change, change of any kind. This was surely not a gambler's mentality, for he never knew how the dice fell, could not read the spots, the dancing spots, even as he could not read the score of faded music or resolve those chords which had already passed into the silence. Perhaps at the last moment she suddenly believed in all she had denied, perhaps with her last rasping breath or in one cell burning like a flame, so that it was and would ever be a question in Mr. Spitzer's mind which was like an echo chamber too beautiful and vast. Should one be held accountable for one's entire life or for one moment of unforeseen and unforeseeable transmutation? Perhaps a change taking place beyond all consciousness or memory or desire? Should one moment of inestimable, inestimable madness dethrone that king who had ruled all his life with reason, he who had been an emperor of many realms and had con- con- concatenated every thought with every thought, forming a chain or a series as with certain unicellular organisms? Or should the reasonably, reasonable suddenly go mad, tottering like an old queen among the shadows, screaming seabirds who knew not what empire it was. Should an old warrior die under the flag of peace? Should one go over to one's enemy? Should the reprobate be pure as snow, his limbs washed by snow water? Or should the pure of heart be suddenly black as the ace of spades? Death should be private, beyond the realm of the intruder, it seemed to him. Or was this great change implicit like a secret logic underlying all the phantasms of life and death? And had it been revealed, or was it only his... And was it his only shot to know that he had always known it, yet had closed his eyes? He had been afraid of ugliness. He had been afraid to look upon that dying suffragette for fear he might see that changing face, that suddenly brightening eye, that beauty returning but for one moment before beauty crumbled into dust and ashes unlighted by a star or nettle or medusa. For should the old grow young even as the young grew old? Perhaps there was no end. Night begot perhaps only the night. Perhaps she died as a beautiful lady crying for her feather fan, her skirt, her mirror rimmed with frost, a dead eye like Joachim's eye staring through the fog. Mr. Spitzer did not know. 
Having dismissed so much, he still maintained, as her delirium of being accustomed to so many hallucinations coming and going, so many images which could not be understood by reason, some which cannot even be understood by madness, so many shadows of things unearthly upon the shadowed fog, and that was why, even to this day or night, the utmost caution must be his, and why, no matter what egregious mistakes he might make, he would be ultimately right as to his grief, which he feared, though greatly he tried to include all things, even those which were disparaged, was more comprehensive than his love. Or perhaps, of course, he could only love the dead, those not awakening from their deep sleep, or awakening only, only to fall into their sleep again, perhaps after only a brief sigh, perhaps still sighing. No doubt he had written some of his elegies too soon, writing almost as automatically as the sandpipers running back and forth in the creeping surf, as their twinkling footsteps were swept over by the long, roaring musical waves in the sea, and their sentences which were punctuated by scrapping starfish, scraping starfish or moon barnacles burning with lights within like fallen moons, or effaced by waves and sands, waves creeping over the holes of the nestless birds. But in time, his elegies would be the only memorial to those who had passed out of existence or were about to pass, and who then would question this lost sequence of events or whether he had written his plaintive shell music before or after they had gone over into the silence. He was like one who had built before he was born the house in which he would live and die, who then would accuse him of a certain mournful pre prematurity, as it were, expressing his grief, an eagerness, an excess, a rushing forth to meet his delaying fate, his fate which had not met him. Grief could never be expressed at the wrong time. Grief could come neither too early nor too late. It was his calling card, perhaps that which was blank. He had laid over this faceless lady a skirt, thinking that, whatever else bedded, she had found her skirt, and he could not be wrong, no matter if he was wrong, for there was none to deny him, none to refute his statement. Customs varied in different countries depending on what toll gates one had to pass. And surely a lady should be skirted when she went to her death. Surely the dead had always been skirted in earlier times, skirted by their shrouds. In the east, where she was going now, <clears throat> all men were skirted like castles of pearls by waters under the full and swollen moon, or half-moon, or crescent moon. Surely they were crowned with crowns of gold. In the east, where men wore skirts, how much easier for a man to dream that he was a woman, even as he might dream in death that he was pregnant, carrying in his womb the fetus, the mirror, and the rose. Death was the orient, whether it was heaven or earth, and she was ever the creature of paradox, made more so now, it seemed to him, shedding his tears which fell like pearls through windy heavens, his tears splashing around him like watery worlds. He asked himself many times who she was and what signified this skirt laid over the body of a dead love, and really he was still at some loss to understand what the answers might be, for there was no cosmetician necessary to those who wore the final veil, their beauty being hidden, never revealed to human eyes, and just as none had shrived this body or marked the hour of her death or the boundary line between the living and the dead, as not even he could have timed the slow withdrawal of her spirit. He had turned away for fear there should be, even after so many years, sudden spark or star shining through the rolling fog, like her returning spirit or that which had never faded and had moved not as the clouds drifted over her. They were like lace drifting over rock. He did not know, as a matter of fact, the hour of his own death, enjoying as to that certainty only the most dubious retrospect, and often mistaking the hour, so that his was, indeed, after this afterlife. For he lived after his death as he lived before his death, and perhaps, like himself, she lived beyond the narrow line of consciousness, much like that music which was never written or music spilling into silence before it was heard, 
so none should know when she was gone, and none should know where she had gone. The dead lived with their unfinished business. Infinite frustration was theirs. A line between the living and the dead was doubtless no greater, perhaps even less than that between the living and the living. Perhaps she still must wander, crying at many gates, knocking at many doors, arousing many watchmen in their dark towers, forever crying for the image of her love who had gone before her into the darkness. Her love had gone before her death, so might not her death go before her love? For what was time at this last hour when the hours were never again to be marked by the dial stars? And if the pendulum moved again, cleaving through windy heavens like the wing of some great bird casting its shadow on the glassy sand, it moved only in a dream, Mr. Spitzer thought. He often consulted his broken watch like a moon jelly gleaming on his wrist, a watch with no numbers to the hours. Or sometimes he read the moon jelly in the moving sand or the faceless sundial, sometimes the star footed in the salt marsh, sometimes the periwinkle under the glider wave, sometimes the kingfisher's eerie cry, wondering what time it was. But time could not tell him the time. To ask of time the time was like asking of the thief, where is the jewel you stole? Nor could one ask of timelessness. Long after her last hour, perhaps long after his last hour, Mr. Spitzer, though often searching his mind, did not know whether she was the crusader upon some distant quest in search of a great Raj of the jewel, a crown jewel which should be plucked from a crown of gold, or the crusader's sleeping wife, bound by a girdle of iron locked by an iron key, waiting for her love to return, not knowing that her love was dead, and what should be worse than that there should be one spark of life which glittered like the lost star. Would it not have been better if he had never disturbed the sleeping lady, never wakened her? Or was this as it was, and was she never deflowered, and did she only dream of one cold spark? Should the living child be born from the dead mother locked in her casket of iron? There were many keys, iron and gold and lead, keys of ivory, keys of glass, but none to fit this rusted lock, and there were portholes through which the spirit could not pass. Doubtless there were keyholes which swallowed keys, there was no key, there was no master key. Better that a cruel lord should never have plowed this stony land, fold upon fold, peak upon peak, land of no bird or tree or flower, no lake or eye of the moon, land like that desert and those mountains which he traveled now. Better that he should never planted his seed before he traveled so far from home. He opened all closed doors, but one, the door he had closed. Perhaps he had thought that it was the door of a tomb. Perhaps, leaving that silence he could not endure, he had thought that no bee buzzed within. There was no honey in this great stone hive reaching into clouds where were no stars. No light glowed within or without. No bird splashed upon the rain-flooded porches. Perhaps he had thought that there was no flood to uphold the bottle-nosed dolphin following the boat star through dim transparencies, so he had gone to holy lands. Perhaps he had thought there was no hyacinth into which the bees were sucked, no aperture through which a city of minarets or domes or a white butterfly could pass, holding or unfolding its wings powdered as with glittering stardust, no butterfly born from the spindle star, no many turreted seagull cried in empty rooms, and no lamp glowed at the darkened windows. There was no estuary upon which an olive could pass, going down to the sea to which all seashells should return. No horse with its mother-of-pearl flanks rolling in great beakers of foam slept with her, no dog barked at a fallen star. The night's darkness knew neither stars nor eyes. He rescued all ladies, but one he had imprisoned, leaving her to rot. Mr. Spitzer, her attorney closing her last estate before the old house was torn down to make room for the new traffic. And oh, how he hated these urban changes caused by the population growth, or slow or sudden diminishment, these sudden shift, shifts which sometimes found him walking down streets which were no more reading signposts which had vanished in the fog, knocking at doors where were no listeners, 
Was the dead heart heard the muffled beating of his heart, or a heart moved under a loose flagstone? Or the flagstone was indeed the heart, had been a surprise by unexpected, hitherto concealed aspects of Cousin Hannah's life, as if he had found an iron helmet where the cherubim nested in the long-toned grass, but far away from her, far, too far from home, perhaps upon a windy mountain slope starred by snow, perhaps where her great lord had fallen, or surprised as if like some old tree stump in a dark forest she had been the nesting place of butterflies, full cocoons like velvet purses filled with ethereal coins. The old suffragette's unceasing duplicity was such as to startle even him among the shadows closing an empty house, sealing off room after room as if he sealed the chambers of the winding seashell, wishing that the house could sink beneath the earth, or that there was earth, or that earth was sinking sand. Far better this than that the house should be wrecked, or that, or that all should pass out of sight, that there should be only old palings like the float sand returned by the waves, the helmsmen who were the boats, the old crates, boxes, dragging sails, there should never be excavation in future time to tell the history of the dolphin, the rose, the sunken moon, the tree, the alp, the star, the cloud, and images which never were. Far better that they should sink than that they should be lost. Scattered, wrecked, the shipwreck rising through the waves at dawn near the shipwrecked stars, burning low upon distant coasts, the stars fading as the light increased. The stars were blurred as if shining underwater. Better that they should exist submerged and that they should exist at the surface where all were lost.